Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. You know, Van Halen was a was an act that was best recorded quickly. That there was just there was a certain energy level and a certain vibe that came from those guys just getting in the room together and playing. And if you start to micromanage it, it just took all the life and the fun out of it. Class is it. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. I'm sorry Tammy is not with us this week. Why? Not because of coronavirus, but because I have another hour-long interview with a wonderful author this week, Greg Renoff. Now, those of you who are sharp-eared listeners to this show probably remember about a year, year and a half ago, we spoke to Greg Renoff about his book, Van Halen Rising. Don't get me wrong, great book. But this one that he has written is so wonderful, at least an equal to Van Halen Rising. It's called Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. It is Ted Templeman as told to our guest today, Greg Renoff. Now look. You know me, you're a listener to this show. Ted Templeman has been the producer for the Doobie Brothers, for Montrose, for Van Morrison. But let's be honest, again, you know me, the vast majority of this is going to be about Van Halen. So let's get right into it. Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music, as told to our guest today, Greg Renoff. On the phone with me is Greg Renoff. If the name rings a bell, you probably remember him from a Van Halen book we talked about last summer. But he is back with this new tome, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Greg, hi. How are you? Thanks for talking with us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back on the show. I need to talk to you just simply because it says Ted Templeman as told to Greg Renoff. So you're not really a ghost writer. I mean, your name's on the front cover. How does such a book come to be? What did you do? So, yeah, the, uh, I would start by just saying that that was one of the things that um, Ted was really upfront about in terms of his interest in doing a book like this was going to be, it wasn't going to be a, uh, a, a, a book that looked like he was doing it for his own you know, um, promoting himself basically. And so he was, you know, he was actually in that kind of circles back to the beginning was that he was, I, I would say when we first started talking about it after, um, I had worked with him on Van Halen rising, meaning I interviewed him for it. And he had done a book event with me in Pasadena, which was really amazing. He came out for the Van Halen rising book event in Pasadena. I eventually pitched the, uh, you know, some weeks after that, pitched the idea of doing a book with him. And he, his basic approach, I think on it was, okay, if you're interested in doing this, it's got to be focused on my artists. I don't want it to be 
about me with my, you know, my, my drama of my private life and other things kind of outside the studio. I wanted to be focused on the music and the artists I worked with because that's who Ted really feels loyal to is the people who, um, you know, spent their time with him in the studio and they made these great albums together. But, um, but also I think Ted really was interested in making sure that it was seen as, as something that, um, was, was going to really, um, be a legitimately, um, historically accurate and dense book that was going to do, um, you know, do, do the work that I, I hoped I was able to bring to the book, which is to get people to really see where Ted's album appear in terms of the context of music history of the 1970s and the 1980s and on, onward. And also to really do a lot of work on Ted's musical biography himself, kind of Ted wanting to explain how he came to, for example, put a lot of percussion on the Doobie Brothers records and some of the other records he did, what basically his own musical upbringing, what he was attracted to as a young person, his musical training, sort of how that all played itself out in the making of the records. And so that was kind of the, the starting point of doing the book was it wasn't meant to be sort of a, you know, oh, I, I'm going to just write a book about myself because I'm some sort of ego trip. And in fact, to be frank with you, I had to do some work to convince him to do it, actually. It was just, you know, because I think he's just naturally kind of, as a producer, he's a guy who's behind the scene if the artists are in the spotlight and he wasn't really interested in trying to make it a, you know, that type of thing where he'd be the, you know, it would be all about Ted, so to speak, where he just really wanted to make sure we were doing uh, the uh, the good work to really show the, the legacy of the music and then the great artists he worked with. Now, you even said in the book he was the guy behind the glass. Was was this something, I mean, did he journal, uh, or is this off the top of his head? Because I have to tell you, the, the detail is is staggering in the book. We, well, you know, Ted, Ted did have some notebooks that he kept track of some of his studio sessions. He didn't keep a diary per se, so he had a few things that he was able to show me kind of where he was going and coming. Um, but a lot of it really was built out of uh, Ted recounting stories to me telling me about making minute by minute with the doobie brothers or making um the carly simon record another passenger and then um, me going and trying to do digging into newspaper archives and magazines to sort of and then bring more stuff to ted's attention to be like you know you know this is when the album came out it was just basically talking about the liner notes kind of going through the, the jog ted's memory and basically that's how it went you know, it's like anything else. If somebody um, asked you about high school, you'd probably be able to sketch out a lot of things that happened in high school. But then if, if somebody brought more things to you, showed you clippings from the school newspaper, you go, oh, I remember, you know, I remember this. And that was a lot of what went on, too, was sort of, you know, um, bringing things to Ted's, onto Ted's radar again. Be like, oh, my gosh, I totally forgotten about this happened, you know, from, um, you know, from something from Billboard. There'd be a photograph of him with, with some people, uh, you know, at a studio or something, and he would talk about that, and that would trigger some more memory. So it was... You know, it was about me trying to build upon what Ted uh, gave. So, you know, the, the the book is based on, as it says, you know, conversations with, with Ted and emails and lots of emails with Ted and telling me stories and going back over his, his memories, but then me coming back and being um, able to sort of maybe bridge the get bridge some of the gaps for him and help him fill in the holes for things, you know, that anyone would forget over, over the years, but mm-hmm. you know, kind of laying out a chronology, these types of things being like, Oh, you know, sometimes it's like, Oh, that song came out before the song. I've forgotten which single had come first. That type of stuff. <laughs>
talked about uh, the Doobie Brothers a good bit in the book. I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, when he did the first Doobie Brothers LP, you know, the Doobies are always connected up with um, with the Hells Angels and such. And I remember you writing about that he claimed he made his first big mistake and learned a valuable lesson. Tell us about the Doobie Brothers and that mistake that he learned about. <laughs> yeah, there, there probably were a number. I mean, I think it was a number he listed. I don't know how many we talked about in the book, but there was a number that we talked about in the book. Um, so, you know, Ted and Lenny Warrenker produced the Doobie Brothers debut. And one of the things that Ted talked about that he made a mistake of, of not putting his foot down about, and uh, Lenny didn't either, was not letting people hang around the studio, basically having all sorts of people. And actually, speaking of the Hells Angels, that's the, the, the funniest part of this, uh, that, um, that making that record in retrospect was that the, the Doobie Brothers were... Um, we're all friends with Hell's Angels and Satan Slaves and basically all of these real 1% bikers. I mean, those are the guys who used to come see the Doobies play. That was their thing. And Tom and Pat particularly, you know, they weren't, you know, uh, they weren't in these bike gangs themselves, but they were, they were pals with these guys because this was their favorite the Santa Cruz chapter of, uh, San Jose chapter of the Hell's Angels. And the Doobie Brothers were like their favorite, their favorite group. And so they were, dupe, you know, they were trying to make the record in, uh, in San Mateo, I think, they were working on the record. And uh, Ted, you know, so there's like these Hells Angels sitting in the studio, you know, basically on the couch behind him, drinking shots of uh, Jack Daniels and, you know, laughing and, you know, and, and uh, Ted didn't really feel comfortable trying to throw them out, obviously. You know, I've told you this. There may be a bigger Van Halen fan on this earth, but they'd have to prove it. I think it's me. Now, I, you know, the, the big thing about interviewing somebody about a book is you don't want to give the book away because they, they obviously you want people to read it. But look, next comes Van Morrison, Montrose, more Doobie Brothers. But let's get to it. It seems like no other band in the book seems to evoke more emotion as Ted seeing and recording Van Halen. Am I right about that? You know, I think it's it's something that really came from, in part, you know, for me, in my conversations with Ted, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I come away with that exact same feeling. Um, you know, part of it, you know, maybe a product that Ted knew. I wrote about a book about Van Halen, so he was naturally interested in talking about Van Halen. But I think because of the way Ted discovered Van Halen, I think that's part of it. That rather than having a, having a a demo come in on his desk and listening to it and going and seeing them, I think just the way it all started with Van Halen, especially just going to the club and seeing those guys live for the first time, and then really being able to be, you know, the guy who molded. Um, those in the studio as the producer. Um, that's again, Ted would give enormous credit to Lenny Warnker for his career. I think he talks about that numerous times in the book that you know how much Lenny helped his his mentorship relationship with Lenny. But I, I think in part of it because the um, because Ted was you know David, Ted found them, Ted got them signed, Ted produced them, and then their records came out of really nowhere to be such a monster monster hit. I think that was something that for um, for Ted, evokes a great deal of of pride and also, I think, affection for those guys as well, uh, because 
I think from Ted's perspective, the just the, the talent level there that was so astounding um, for for him as a producer to kind of get that in there and be able to work with those guys alone in the uh, with you know Don Landy obviously, but as a producer to be able to work from those guys from the basement down in uh, David Lee Roth's house all the mm-hmm. way to the studio and have the album be so successful, I think that was really what what um, what generates that type of of in tremendous um, enthusiasm. And particularly, uh, the last thing I would say is his his um, you know what what he what he says in the book, which is that Eddie Van Halen was the best musician he had ever seen perform before, and he had seen. I mean, Ted had been a guy who had been to a lot of big jazz concerts I and mean, he had seen you know, everybody from uh, from pop music all the way through jazz big band I mean Ted was a real a real um, concert goer as you might imagine and said that you know it was the most astounding musical performance he ever saw just a you know just one night at the Starwood Club from from Eddie Van Halen at that time he was just so blown away by his musicality I think that's part of the other thing too is that he just he just sees him as a transcendent uh, musical artist as a musical musician someone who really you know as we all know changed the face of rock and roll through his, his instrument playing oh i <laughs> i think so however at the beginning of their time when they were recording van halen one and i have to tell you what a jump from the doobie brothers to van halen the if you read the entire book at the beginning david lee roth and this was all Eddie Van Halen. David Lee Roth was window dressing, but it seems to right. flip towards the end that he becomes a bigger right. fan of Dave. However, right at the beginning, and I think you and I spoke about this during your first book, I, I never believed that Sammy Hagar was even thought of until Dave left the band, but you state straight away that while recording Van Halen 1, I think it was even Ted Templeman that stated... Look, I've just recorded Montrose with this Sammy Hagar guy. He's got a big mane of blonde hair. Let's bring him in. Am I right about that? Yeah. So it would have been it would have been the demo sessions that that Ted really focused on that. But yeah, I mean Ted Ted alluded to that. Um, and, you know, stated it straight out when we did we did Van Halen Rising. Um, we were, you know I interviewed him for Van Halen Rising, but I'm working with him on this book. You know, he we kind of went into more detail about that. He was he. I had some reservations about Dave as a singer, but was so overwhelmed by Ed's talent and thought the songs were good that he was willing to give it a go. And when they did the demo, this would have been about four or five months before they recorded the first Van Halen record. Um, Ted was really concerned afterwards because he just thought there were a lot of problems with the way Dave sang, that basically the melodies Dave had written, he couldn't pull off, that there were um, parts where he just was just, Ted would say, flat out unacceptable. I mean, it was just to his ears, that it was not going to be able to, to, to fly. It wasn't good enough. And, and so he toyed with the idea in his head, and eventually he confided to Don Landy, his, his engineer, that, you know, that you know maybe I should get Sandy. He was concerned. Um, but one of the great uh, things about the, the way the story all, all plays out is that Ted talked to me in great length about how after he really started rehearsing those guys, after he said, okay, let me just work with Dave. Let me see what, you know, let me see what I can do. Um, I'm not going to do anything hasty or rash. And of course, you know, to be clear, there's no guarantee, you know, Ted would be the first one to tell you. I mean, if he had said to those guys, you know, you know, they might've said to him, no, we're not going to replace Dave. And that right. would've been like, okay, we're going to make the record with Dave. Well, I, you know, I, I am a hundred percent sure that Ted never would have quote unquote dropped Van Halen or tried not to record the first record. If they said no, I think, you know, he, and he never actually even at that time broached it with the guys in the band. Right. Uh, he only mentioned it to Don. 
Um, but you know, when we got down in the basement with those guys and this would have been after the demo, but before the first record and start to really polish some of their songs, work on, Oh, improving melodies, changing arrangements, these types of things that Ted said he really started to hear Dave in a different sort of way and particularly focused in on the lyrics, songs like Ain't Talking About Love, Atomic Punk, all these songs that Dave had written. He said, well, this guy is brilliant. These lyrics he was coming up with were just so, so powerful. And uh, Ted, you know, I think, you know, you're not going to find a, a bigger fan of, of uh, David Lee Roth's lyrical abilities then catch him. I, I got to ask you specifically about this. You you simply mentioned Unchained and zipped away from it. But there's a line in the song, and I wanted to ask you specifically about this. Did Ted even uh, mention it? There's a line where Dave says something like, tell us how you do. And coming back says, come on, Dave, give me a break. I've heard that that's right. Ted Templeman. I've heard that it was spontaneous. I've heard that it was set up. Did you get anything out of that? Sure. Yeah. It was, so it was set up. Um, you know, the the, uh, the uh, voice saying, "Come on, Dave, give me a break," is Ted. Yeah. And there was a basically what it what had happened was that there was a there was a uh, Ted had stopped a take in the middle. They were working on the song or working on part of that song in the studio, and there had been something had happened where I don't rem- I don't remember if Ted even told me. You know, maybe there was a microphone that wasn't on, so Ted had to stop the take or whatever. And say, Gus, Tanya, stop, you guys, we got we to do it again. And then Dave did something, like, just spontaneously, like, give me a break. And, uh, come on, Ted, give me a break. And they decided to go ahead and, uh, or whatever. It's just, you know, you know, they did this, this interruption back yeah. and forth talking. And then somebody, um, maybe Don Landy or maybe Alex, I don't know if Ted remembers or you mentioned the book, but somebody said we should do this. And they worked it up as a sort of a, a shtick on the, on the record. But, yeah, that's Ted. And, um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, he had actually, the funny story is that he'd actually had a suit on that day. And that was part of the part of the gag that they had, you know, that suited you because Ted was going to a, 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 you know, as I mentioned, he was a record executive. He was going to a um, a meeting with some, you know, whoever heavy hitters in the industry had after the studio session. So he didn't know, you know, he didn't often wear suits, but he had a suit on that day. And, and so it, that was what they was, you know, that suited you and that, right. whole, that whole gag thing. It was really well done because you can even hear the talk back switch click right before he speaks. It was well done. We need to take our first break here on the Rock School Radio Show, allow our affiliates to play their commercials and make everybody happy. We'll be back in one more minute to talk with author Greg Renoff, author of Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music.
Now, look, Ted had worked with Van Morrison, obviously. He had worked with right. we had he had worked with Montrose, and and he talked about the you know the ex- excessive recording, the chunka chunka chunka, and all that with the Doobie Brothers. But the one thing that he said that you wrote was that Van Halen would get songs on tape damn quickly, just bang bang bang, and knock them out. Did you get a feeling? Yeah, I mean, that, you get a feeling he was for that or against it or what? No, I think he was. I think he was. I think it depended on the artist. I mean, I think the thing that Ted would 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 say, and based on my conversation with him and what I wrote in the book, was that you know Van Halen was a was an act that was best recorded quickly. That there were just there was a certain energy level and a certain vibe that came from those guys just getting in the room together and playing. And if you start to micromanage it, it just took all the life and the fun out of it. You know, where something like with the Doobie Brothers, there was much more of a, you know, they had much more layered albums. They, for, I'll give you a, a great example of that. As they, Ted talks about this in great detail in the book, because they actually, on a number of their tracks, maybe three or four songs per album, they had two drummers playing on the same song. So if you put on headphones, you'll hear one drummer in one ear and the other drummer in the other channel. Right. And so that, you know, that took yeah. a lot of time to be able to work those parts out. And then you enter, you add, add, Horns, strings, percussion, two, three guitars. Sometimes it's going faster in the band. Three guitar players, multiple vocalists. So it just took longer to make those. Those it just you just couldn't just put all those you know all those things in one room and just you know go one two three go. Which but with drums, bass, and guitar and a vocal, you could do that stuff. And so and, and again, that was something that uh, as you alluded to with Van Morrison, that was something that Ted learned from working with Van Morrison, who was had um, even if. Ted wanted to do things in a more methodical ma- fashion. Van wasn't having it. It just wasn't. He just wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was a matter of just you better get it on tape right now, um, first or second take, or it's over and the song will disappear. And so that was one thing that Ted really learned from from the Van Morrison experiences. You know, even a first or second take, even if you're like, oh, you know, like there's a flubbed bass note in there, or oh man, missed a missed something. You know, whatever. He, he clunked a string on his guitar. It didn't matter in the big scheme of things. So the overall song, performance, the whole vibe from the, the musical piece itself overshadowed any of those tiny little inter- in, in a, um, uh, inadvertent mistakes. And that's something that Ted really took forward with the Van Halen records and a lot of his other artists just to leave, you know, you leave leave things in there um, if you have to, because it, it, in the big scheme of things, people aren't going to notice 99% yeah. of the time. Oh, it make it, it does. It makes for a better record. When you get a, a song, and I find this a lot in Christian rock, when you get a song that is so unbelievably perfect and well-crafted, it sucks the physical life right out of it. I right, right. There's a comment that I have heard multiple times attributed to David Lee Roth, the idea that if it is already a hit and you re-record it, you're halfway to another hit. 
and I've always heard that was from the Diver Down LP, but you state that it came in from Ted on Van Halen 2. Yeah, Ted had talked about that. And he said, you know, he said that was, um, he mentioned, he did say it in that one, that one context with, uh, I think, with um, You're No Good, the Leonard Ronstan song, you know, and I, I think one point that Ted really wanted to emphasize about Van Halen was that the cover tunes were not coming from down above from the producer in almost all circumstances except for one, which was Dancing in the Street. All the other ones were ones that the band already had that Ted basically said, we should do that. We could do that one on the record, but they had already basically worked it up themselves rather than Ted going, you know, basically like handing them a cover song and saying, why don't you guys do this one? Uh, you, you know, You're No Good being the, the example we're talking about, which is one that Dave had suggested. Dave suggested to do that one. And so, um, you know, but that is that is something that, that Ted really was uh, aware of with a band like Van Halen because it's he as he would tell you it, it's difficult it was difficult sometimes to get heavy rock played on radio, especially AM radio in the seventies. And mm -hmm. what had happened with Montrose was that Montrose was was too heavy for AM radio and really maybe wasn't out there enough in terms of their their pop format with their songs for uh, what was called underground FM at the time, which was sort of you know longer experimental stuff that was being played on, on the uh, FM side of things at the time, which was, was you know, a little bit um, maybe out of step with what Montrose was doing. And so, you know, Ted said his mistake with Montrose was that he didn't give us, get that a single good enough, that he didn't basically think about, okay, what song is going to get played? Like, listen to the music or Long Train Run-In. What's that AM radio hit that's really going to break a record? And so when Montrose, which Ted will tell you to this day is one of the greatest albums he ever worked on and he just thinks it's just um, what a brilliant performance by Sammy and Ronnie Montrose and all the guys in that band it just killed Ted that that album didn't sell and again not so much that Ted wanted to make money on the record I mean you know, looking back now he doesn't you know it's not like he's like worried about whether he made money on the Montrose record it's just more that those guys deserved to get heard more and they deserved yeah. to have a monster record because it was so good I mean Ted's just like when you, when you do Ted's real big sticking point that he had with me is you know when you do something that's that great you want people to hear it it's not just about just making money you want it to get get you know get out there because it deserves to be heard because greatness deserves to be heard and like oh, yeah you know not everything that's great gets out there unfortunately that's just the way the music industry works and so that was when ted was really you know, after that that's why he was really sure with van halen with the first record to suggest that you guys are already covering you really got me in the clubs i've heard you guys perform it live at the start with let's do that one because that would be a good first single for you guys this meandering thing until Michael McDonald, i.e. minute by minute by minute, shows up and basically pulls this song out of the muck 
and then he gets screwed. Tell us that little yeah, bit. It's just, yeah, it's, it's sort of a kind of a weird, a weird, a weird chapter, a weird, weird saga. Yeah. So the, um, you know, I'll wait was a musical idea, as Ted would put it, that had you know with a, a part that um, Alex and Ed and Don had recorded. They recorded something better than a demo. They had you know basically they had put down the keyboard part, they put down the drum part, but they just didn't quite have it finished and. Along with that, Dave really couldn't get a handle on a, a, a melody for it. And so Ed and Don and Alex really wanted the song to appear on the record. And so Ted Templeman, who, you know, who was trying to um, cultivate, you know, further cultivate Ed's musical sensibility around the keyboards at this point, going, okay, look, you really want the song on the record? Let's let's think outside the box. And they, um, I don't remember if it was Dave, I think it was Dave, maybe Dave or somebody said, hey, let's, what about Michael McDonald? And Ted said, great idea. Let's get him to help. I mean, this guy's one of the best songwriters in the world. And they get um, in the office, Ted Templeman's office, they have Michael McDonald, Ted Templeman, and Don, uh, excuse me, and, <laughs> and David Lee Ross sit together and they finish off the song. But yeah, when the song came out, it, you know, um, <laughs> the press, first record, the press of the record came out, Michael McDonald's name doesn't appear on the record. And, uh, huh. You know, yeah. Ted, Ted is uh, got a, uh, you know, kind of got caught in the middle of that thing because he, you know, it wasn't his job to go ahead and figure out who gets credited on what songs. I mean, that was, as a producer, he's not, that's not in his, his uh, domain to do that. That's the artist's job to do that. But some, as he, you know, somebody along the line in the Van Halen camp decide, or some group of people, um, again, it's not hundred percent sure what happened. Either really doesn't know who, who made the decision or what it was, but, um, Michael McDonald was not credited as a songwriter for it. So that was a big, um, a big problem for Ted because he was yeah. friends with Michael McDonald and there was, uh, you know, he, he always felt that, you know, uh, you know, he, Mike was the guy who did a favor for Ted and some, you know, he's like, he did a favor for me. He, just, he didn't really know the Van Halen guys well. They were just acquaintances. And so it kind of, he'd say, yeah, help these guys out, you know, problem. And then, you know, <laughs> don't credit somebody when they're, you know, when they, they really, Wrote they wrote the, the uh, they wrote the chorus melody and the lyrics the you know basically the hook of the song the I'll wait part that's all Michael McDonald the, right. the chorus he wrote that stuff I um, I, I love, can understand why he was been out of shape oh yeah I loved in the book that that you recount the phone call where where Ted Templeman says I didn't know about this I didn't believe that Mike McDonald believed me time for the second break here on Rock School we'll be back in just one minute to continue speaking with Greg Renoff author of Ted Templeman a platinum producer's life in music here on Rock School <laughs>
Okay, uh, I know I'm moving along here, but and and I, I just have to say this, and I'm going to say it again towards the end. I loved your Van Halen book. I truly did. Van Halen Rising was a wonderful book. This is spectacular. I mean, I absorbed this book, so I'm jumping around here because simply because of time. I got the feeling from the book that the problems with Van Halen, as many people have believed, it all started with 1984, but you suggest no. It was all the way back in the Pretty Women, uh, Pretty Woman days. Diver Down seemed to be the breaking point of the band where people physically split and took sides. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for Ted, it, it, it definitely was a painful episode for him because he loved Van Halen so much and certainly never wanted, as he emphasized over and over and over again to me, I never wanted Van Halen to break up. Even when David quit, I wanted them to get back together. He never, um, you know, I think contrary to maybe some popular speculation, it was never a question of Dave was like, great, they're broken up, so now I have, I can, you know, excuse me, Ted was never like, great, they've broken up, now I have David Lee Roth as a solo artist and it's right. perfect for me. That was never, that was never his, um, his deal. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it too is that, that you know Ted was was um, maybe not always privy to some of the stuff that was going on within the dynamics of the of the the band at that time in terms of the the uh, disagreements and the, the resentments that were boiling. Um, you know Ted would tell me that they you know those guys they argued in front of me, but a lot of the sort of the bigger internal band stuff. I mean, it wasn't like they had Ted come over and then they just start had it out in front of Ted. You know, it was just he wasn't always privy to that stuff. So, um, but what went on with Diver Down was for sure. The, the rush to put it out and then uh, the I think the sense that it really was uh, an album that how would I put this that I think all those guys you know as much as the you know Ted liked some of the stuff on it it, it was it was rushed um, and that was due to the circumstances that ended up happening with the the pretty woman single charting and then Warner Brothers uh, meaning the people above Ted meaning Lenny Warnker and Mo Austin the CEO and the president wanting a record basically going, you've got a single you, you've got to make a record because you, right. you know we don't make no one make no one makes money off a single Not, there's no you can't mm-hmm. tour on it you can't be like here's our new 45 let's go on the road for 180 yeah. days it just doesn't work that way right. so um, I think there was a lot of um, you know disenchantment with, with that way that all went down in terms of the circumstances and then we, we fast forward to 1984 and there were some just like some some stuff that had shifted Eddie Van Halen was taking more of a uh, a role in, in wanting to shape the music, you know, really wanting to, in some ways, co-produce, I mean, in some sort of ways, even though he wasn't listed as a co-producer, I think that's what was happening. He had his own studio now, and he really wanted to take a firmer hand in what was going on, um, and there was definitely uh, tension that had developed, as, as indicated in the book, between uh, Ed and Dave, and then, and then um, Ed and Ted, too, as the uh, album process went on, Mickey in 1984 really took a long time, and that was making... Uh, Ted loses mind because you know Ted had certain deadlines he was trying to meet as a Warner Brothers executive, and the album was was running over over time. It wasn't the budget particularly; it was just the, that they were missing deadlines, and it was you know it was right. it was a big a big release. I mean, a Van Halen record is not like a you know an album by an unknown artist. It's going to come out along with twenty five other unknown artists. It was a mm-hmm. big major release for Van Halen, for the for the label, and it was a big um, a big problem that the yeah. album. It was getting basically looking like it was going to be very late to come to market. Right. I, I, look, I have my own studio. I'm standing in it right now. But this is one of the things I got from Ted Templeman, i.e. you writing it, was that now there's the 5150 studio, which is in this old racquetball court that has been outfitted for it. 
it's not $200 an hour. You, there's no, look, snap, snap, fellas, let's get this done. There's right. the concern right. of, look, it's my own studio. I can sit in here for 40 hours straight if I want. And he did. Tell me about that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the thing that was, for Ted, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing that, from Ted's perspective, I mean, I think he really believes and wanted to convey in the book how much admiration he has for Don Landy. I mean, Don Landy built that studio. Don Landy was Ted's engineer. Um, still, he's friends with Ted now. They've, you know, they've had a, a, a long-running friendship and kind of a put all whatever, you know, whatever happened in the past in the past long ago that was just kind of water under the bridge over the decades ago. But, um, you know, Don built that studio and, and Ted and Ed and Don were all really excited about it. It was going to be Ed's, basically it was going to be a place for Ed to work on music in a more... Um, sophisticated fashion than he could in a little four-track recorder inside the, you know, the, the inside his house. And so Ted was involved with the making of it, meaning that Ted was coming up there, he was giving advice, he was going, this is going to be great, this is really cool. And eventually, as, as we all know, Ed, um, in particular Ed and Alan, Don, um, who was more neutral about it but wanted to give it a try, wanted to make the, the album at 5150, which is in Ed's backyard. And Ted had some reservations about that because he had been at, um, been to a number of private studios over the years and he just felt like it was just not always conducive to work. It's just like, you know, um, the quote-unquote working from home thing, which we're all doing now because of the coronavirus insanity that's going on in the country. It's not, yeah. it's not the same as working in the office. I mean, you're in your sweats, you know, it's whatever. It's just not, there's just something a little bit different about the the, uh, the vibe. And so it wasn't that Ted didn't think the studio um, was amazing. I mean, he will, he will tell you that Don Landy is a genius, electronics genius, a musical genius, a uh, recording engineer genius, that he's a superlative talent in so many ways and, and thinks that Don made this incredible thing that's just incredible that he built. But he just was worried about trying to put Van Halen in basically in the backyard rather than in a, a studio in a public place where they were sort of like, okay, we got to get this done. Because that was, you know, Ted's job was to get these albums to market, which I get, you know, it was a tough thing yeah. for Ted sometimes to balance because you're trying to be the guy who's the, who's the, you know, who's working with the artist, you're supporting your artist, but on the other hand, you have to be kind of the heavy to be like, we've got to finish this. You know, you go yeah. from being basically the buddy to the, the authority figure to be like, we've got to get this done. And that's where, you know, um, things kind of got off, off track from, from Ted's perspective, you know, but on the other hand, the flip side, did, and um, I think Ted, um, Ted really wanted to be fair to Ed Van Halen in the book about this, but he just, you know, it was just Ted had, um, and Ed's vision were different about the record. I mean, a different different vision in terms of the instrument instrumentation, and, and then the way that um, basically the way that Don and Ted wanted to, excuse me, Don and Ed wanted to record it. They just wanted to basically work on it in a much more methodical, um, you know, doing many takes, for example, of things over and over, mixing over and over and over again, rather than just sort of the old method, which was go in there for three weeks, two weeks record it, one week mix it, then send it to the pressing plant, which is the way most of the Van Halen records were, they were made. I mean, they were yeah. definitely and, diver down. And you can't and the first argue. three for sure were made very quickly.
The name of the book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, and it is by Ted Templeman, as told to the person we've been speaking to for an hour, Greg Renoff. And I'm going to say it again. Look, I enjoyed the last book we talked about, Van Halen Rising. I really liked it. This is so much better. Is it available? I, I hate that. That sounds like I'm putting down the other book, but I'm not. I, I, I love them both, but this one was shockingly good. Uh, available at fine booksellers across the United States and Internet? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, fine booksellers across the United States, as we all know, are closed because of coronavirus. But, yes, <laughs> it's available. Uh, the, you know, the, the, I'm sure a lot of the brick-and-mortar ones are. But, yes, um, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. I mean, I know that a number of bookstores are doing a lot of mail order now, so your local support your local booksellers for sure. Um, yeah, and so it's, it's an audible audio book, which will be out April 21st, along with the ebook April 21st, and then who's, paper who's reading it? April 21st. Who's reading it? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to who's reading that. It's not I really me. Wish it's not you'd, I really wish you'd contact me, because I could have read your book. <laughs> it's so funny. I, you know... Uh, you know, I, I don't have a stay into it. It's just, you know, the, the press uh, goes, we're, we'll take care of that. Thanks for, thanks for signing the book contract. We'll take it from here. So I don't have any stay in it either. But, um, yeah, it'll be it maybe the same individual, same gentleman who read Van Halen Rising. I'm not sure. But, um, okay. yeah, it'll all be out. So, um, you know, and I would, I would just say one of the things to your, your audience, which I certainly appreciate their support of Van Halen Rising as well. And if they pick this one up, do know that Amazon has been saying that they will deliver on the release date. And there have been obviously some talk with all the, stuff that's been going on with the crisis across the country that books were not going to be delivered on time but amazon is is uh been promising they're delivered april 21st so it's getting getting close we're we're uh, on the home stretch there and really appreciate your kind words and i'm really uh just grateful to uh for you to taking the time and really diving in deep as you did yeah it's 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 as good as i'm saying it is but look i'm gonna throw this out at you again i did this at the end of our last interview your next book needs to be a tome on the breakup of Van Halen. Tell us the actual story. <laughs> it's uh, I, I will tell you the actual story right now in my life. Unfortunately, and fortunately, in some ways, is that uh, we are uh, we're doing a lot of uh, child care here at this house right now. So I will I will be putting that in the uh, the, the list of projects to be done. I, I will do another Van, Van Halen book in all seriousness. But uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's been a challenging a challenging time for a lot of people and. Uh, but uh, as much as I would love to tell you that I would, I'd be sitting down and typing another Van Halen book right now, it's just going to be uh, it's going to be some time for me to be able to uh, to get back to that. But uh, it's uh, it's going to be great to get the book out. Ted's excited about it. I'm excited about it. Worked really hard on it, and I'm just so appreciative to Ted for uh, sharing his uh, life story with me and trusting yeah. me to do it. So it's going to be cool. I'm looking forward to people seeing it. I'm excited about it too. Thank you, Greg Runoff, for for talking to us about the book. And uh, you have a wonderful day in the happiest corona place on earth. Thank you for speaking with us. <laughs> <laughs>